Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. Today we have on Ryan O'Connell. He's going to talk all about ADUs on Instagram. You may know him as Ryan O Housing, but he's more active on YouTube um, where he shares a ton about ADUs. For those of you who are new to this world, ADU is accessory dwelling unit. Did I get that right, Ryan? You nailed it. Nailed Um, it. And I'm so excited to have you. This is the first time we've ever talked about ADUs on this show. I know this is primarily a short-term rental show, but, you know, Ryan, I don't think your expertise is STRs or building ADUs as an investment particularly, right? It could just be for a multi-generational home, housing your housing your mom, housing grandma, turn it into a long-term rental, mid-term, whatever it might be. So we're going to pick Ryan's brain on that, but I'm so excited to have him because we are wanting to build an ADU. We have a detached garage in LA County and we want to invest in that and turn it into a midterm rental for nurses, students, whatever it might be. So this episode was definitely very selfishly scheduled so I can uh, get the answers that I need. But Ryan, welcome to the show. Do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us how you became an ADU expert. Oh, geez. Uh, well, thank you for having me on and thanks for everybody for listening. I am obsessed with housing. I, th- I think, you know, I'm in Northern California, but whether you're in the North or the South, this state is at the forefront of a lot of the housing problems mm-hmm. that we're facing in the country. We just haven't built enough. And so housing gets less and less affordable. I was running a business uh, and, and up in Napa, wine thing. And uh, I just saw my, my best team members were having a harder time staying with the company or they were moving farther and farther out, having these like hour and a half each way commutes. And I'm like, what's going on here? And uh, the more I look, looked into it, the more I was like, this is a housing issue. We got we to gotta really work hard and intentionally to fix this. And ADUs were just one way into that because they overlap with so many different things. Uh, delightfully, uh, they, they overlap a lot with short-term rental. Mm-hmm. And, and so I get to play in a lot of different spaces and work with this really unique form of housing, which is like, hey, what if instead of building, instead of building massive housing projects, that really it's like 50 units at a time or 200 units at a time. What if we instead gave every homeowner the ability to build like one or two? And that kind of democratized approach to home building really appeals to me. And it's been a huge movement that a wild ride over the past few years in California. So thank you for having me on. Look forward to talking about it and answering any questions you personally have. <laughs> on top of, on top of hope, hopefully providing some information that gets people thinking, like maybe I could do this. Maybe my mom could do this. Maybe, maybe yeah. that. That uh, that uncle who's trying to figure out uh, this one problem, maybe this is the solution that they should look into. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I know for us, the way that this the discussions between me and my husband, it started to add an ADU. Truly for us, our garage, we do not use it at all. We never park there. It's a detached garage. We just park in the driveway and it's turned into a storage unit. It's all crap. It's like old decorations from our wedding that we're never going to use, old home decor that was meant to be staged in a short-term rental and never never made the cut and it was past the return date. It's just clutter. And then, you know, I'll watch an episode of Hoarders and I'm like, I'm a secret hoarder in my garage. Like, I can't go on like this. And it just really hit me like when we looked at numbers of what, you know, a, a midterm rental, a 30-day rental in our area would do for a travel nurse. And we're within five miles of like six different hospitals. We're also smack between Cal State Fullerton and Cal State Long Beach. So I know that students could stay there. Like we're in a really good location for it. And all the comps, people are charging 3000 to 3500 a month. And it was like, at this point, I am paying, I'm basically paying that much to house my stupid leftover wedding decor and junk. And like seeing it in that way, the calculation became so obvious that this was just worthwhile to turn it into something that can 
make money back and help house people, like you said. I'm curious, when you talked about Napa and there was an issue there with the housing, was it the affordability there or just complete lack of units? Is that why people were driving an hour and a half away? It's both. And they're they're interconnected, right? Like th- this example you just brought up of the traveling nurse or the midterm rental is perfect in my mind to explain this issue where if you do not have a, a, mis- a middle housing option that's like perfect for a three-month professional mm-hmm. single stay, then that person needs to either book something too small for themselves or too large for themselves. And when that happens, they're taking that unit out of the market. And, and mm-hmm. that, that's, that big old house, in another example, is, is sometimes being occupied by one adult because they, they use that house to raise a family, raise kids. But since then, the kids have grown up, moved out. Maybe it's a widow. Maybe, maybe it's not just the garage that's full of stuff. It's, it's kind of two or three house. of the rooms in the house. Yeah. I meet so many people in this situation and because demographics, a lot of, a lot of, of women who survived their husbands and who are in a house that's not hospitable to them anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have all these mismatched homes because we only built one kind of house for like 40 years. It's a big old, and it got bigger and bigger and mul- more, multiple stories. And, and now we need these other options. So what you're doing, you're doing huge work by creating extra housing units, especially if it's something a little less conventional than a single family home. So converting the garage, great. That could, if it's a two car garage, 400 some square feet, yeah. that's still big enough to put in a full bedroom with some privacy. If it's attached, you can do things to create sound privacy with the main house. If it's detached, even better, then you're mm-hmm. talking separate entrances, separate yard space. There's so much we can do to create really great housing that's specific to a new need that didn't exist mm-hmm. at, uh, 30 years ago. And it's being way underserved. So uh, we had that problem in Napa. A lot of agricultural demographic shifts and hospitality shifts over the past uh, decade or two. And the housing is all like multi-story 80s villas uh, in the Tuscan style, right? Like, and like nobody, (laughs) nobody, that's not what we want. That's That's not what a lot of people are looking for. But as a result, if you look down my street, you'll find a lot of houses where we're overcrowding, where we're putting three families maybe a dozen people in a four bedroom Mm -hmm. because that's the type of housing they can find on the market and fitting that many people in is how they can afford to do it. Or they move farther and farther out. And and so it's just, it's just a heartbreak. Every, every story is unique. I don't want to overgeneralize, but man, there's a lot of affordability and scarcity issues. Totally. And I think what really opened my eyes to how big this problem was, was, you know, California is known as, I think, being one of the strictest, like most overregulated states. But when it comes to when I started researching ADUs, it's crazy. From my understanding, the the grants that are available right now, like how much they are incentivizing this to be built. And that was kind of my first clue of like, there is definitely demand for this because California shuts down everything. So if they are promoting some sort of like, entrepreneurialism or or building or construction like there is a need for that and I, through following you for a while i know you were promoting that there was a huge grant in california has that program been cut or there's a that wait list specific for it? program that specific programs are used up which is even better okay. than getting cut uh okay. they they've dispersed over 125 million dollars it's like forty thousand a pop so people were getting mm-hmm. a big chunk of change to help defray the very expensive cost of building one of these and that's, that's, yeah, but there's more programs and there's more rule changes and there's more opportunities. Uh, and that's why the job security, uh, check out how to ADU, <laughs> but, but you can, I'll, I'm on top of all this stuff. Cause as soon as there's this tiny regulatory change on some document that nobody ever looks at outside of a really specific industry that has these knock on effects where suddenly it opens up big opportunities. It makes tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in difference to a project. And, and that's that's what we're all about is trying to get that information out there so homeowners can build their ADUs to create more housing. One thing I am absolutely craving for 2024 is simplicity, but we all know that the setup process for a new short-term rental is anything but simple. That is why I'm so excited to tell you about HostGPO. By shopping with HostGPO, you can save up to 75% on furniture, decor, linens, amenities, and supplies, and they only work with a few select brands that are tried and tested to stand up to the wear and tear of guests. With HostGPO, there is no overwhelm of comparing hundreds of brands, variations, and product reviews. 
You just shop for what you need and rest assured that you are getting the best quality at the best price. Over 300,000 properties are already purchasing through HostGPO, and as the pool of customers grows, so do the discounts that HostGPO can negotiate for us hosts. By signing up through my link in the show notes below, you'll get an exclusive three months of free access to start shopping on HostGPO today. Thank you so much to HostGPO for sponsoring the show and for making it so simple to set up and restock our STRs. Could you define a little bit what what class what qualifies as an ADU? I know for sure. me, it's a detached garage is what we're looking at doing. But you said an attached garage could also work. You can also, I think, just separate within your home, like a certain section, or build an add-on, yeah. build up. Like what what's what are the projects that you're seeing? Yeah, you've got uh, it's a it's one thing that's worth saying is one of the things that makes ADU so powerful is it's a it's a relatively undefined term, and so each state or local government can approach it and give it a definition that is appropriate for that area, right? In California, they did that at the state level. And that's really powerful because all of a sudden, all 400 and some jurisdictions in California, all the cities and counties all have to sing from that same song sheet, more or less. Uh, In other states, they do it by city. Uh, So Portland was way ahead of the pack and they have a different definition than the California definition. We can get to some of the nuances. Then you've got national regulations. So like Fannie and Freddie, uh, who set the lending rules, which a lot of the lenders then follow so that they, they, they all can, can uh, intertrade all their per- lending products. All of those regulations define ADUs yet again with a different definition, each with Fannie and Freddie. Mm-hmm. So the, the term can mean a lot of different things, but at its heart, you already said the big word, accessory dwelling unit and accessory means it's not the primary house, right? It's like a purse is an accessory, right? You wouldn't just wear a purse. That's not an outfit. Uh, <laughs> but, but a purse goes great with uh, a primary, right? With, with something substantial. And the, the benefit of that is it means it's usually piggybacking off the resources for a primary home. So like you already have sewer, you already have utilities, you already have all that stuff figured out. Uh, the ADU can piggyback off that to some extent. Dwelling means that it's a permanent habitation. So like a lot of the time people just put like a little shed in the backyard for like a home office, but it doesn't have cooking facilities and maybe okay. it's not insulated. Maybe it's not, it's not heated or, or cooled. Maybe there's no bathroom. Those things mean, well, that's not really a dwelling. You've just built like a cool shed, right? And the unit is just to say it's, it's at least an independent unit. There's, there's a, a person can live there. They have some requirements, like it, it has to be a certain size usually. And Okay. Uh, it, it maybe, you know, there's, we get really wonky after that, but that's, sure, sure. That's the, or like distance from the home or something like it, things like that would be kind of the, the minutia of like your state, your county. Yeah. Your city. Okay. Yeah. But within that umbrella, like you said, you could convert a garage that's attached. You could, you could build a whole new structure in the backyard in California. If you have a barn, not a lot of people in, in uh, LA have a barn, but in, in the rural Temecula, areas, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. If you have a big dilapidated bar on your on your property, the state handbook specifically says, even if it's a 3,000 square foot bar, you can convert that to a 3,000 square foot ADU. Now, we're pushing the boundaries. I haven't seen a lot of those projects, but like <laughs> anything within that umbrella can be possible depending on how the state and city define uh, ADU. Okay. Okay, sure. And then I wanted to ask you too, when somebody adds on an ADU, and I'm sure this varies wildly depending on the size of it and you know, where they're located and all that. But about how much value does it add to the primary residence or the whole lot? Do you have like a general rule of thumb for that? It's tough. And what I would say is in these early years of investment, everybody who tells you they have the answer is speculating. And once the market matures a little bit more, we can talk to appraisers, pull real data on ADUs that sold in one year, or sorry, homes that sold in one year, and then the same home gets relisted and sold with an ADU in a future year. But mm-hmm. that's, that's not going to happen until the market's pretty mature. And then it's also worth saying that that versatility we just talked about, ADUs are built all different. And so you really have to identify the, what kind of ADU in each listing did you like to, for like comparison? And it's tough. It's tough. What they have discovered in markets like Portland, where it is a little bit more mature, they've got a couple extra years on us. ADUs rarely create more value on day one for a resale than they cost to build. 
because the cost okay. of construction on the West Coast is so high, like it, you're, you're going to spend like 200 grand building this ADU, let's just say. It Wait, is, really? We'll get into yeah, that next. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping yeah, we'll, I could we, do it for we under talk about it. I like ripping the bandaid off real early, yes. real early. Cause, and <laughs> we can talk about your specific project, but I, I want to set people's expectations at a, a number where it's like, okay. yeah, plan for this. Maybe you save some money, but but don't come in thinking you're going to do it for 80000 and like run out halfway through. That's the heartbreaker. Hang so, on, that's literally what I thought. Well, and okay, that's, why, okay. that's why this is an important call. This is why this is an important <laughs> podcast, right? So we're going to talk about it, but it, it's, it's a ton and, and it's a ton of money up front. And there's a, there's a, there's a huge, you're going to be doing this for like nine months. People compare it a lot to, to carrying a child. <laughs> it's an act of hopeless optimism. It's totally worth it in the end. But uh, like you're, you're going to be doing this. It's going to be a huge cost. Now, immediately, a lot of these pencil right away because the cost of financing, because you're not spending hopefully all your own money, the cost of financing is largely covered by the rental return, mm-hmm. if that's what you're using it for, or the cost you would have been paying if you're housing a family member or a loved which is usually the case, right? Okay. So normally somebody's like, well, look, it's going to cost me five grand a month to put my elderly parent in a, in a facility that can really take care of them while still giving them independence and privacy. Hold on. I could convert the garage and the financing is going to be less than that. And like, we could okay. work this all out. Or the other version you see all the time is like, my, my kids are coming out of college. There's no way they can afford to come back to California mm-hmm. unless, well, maybe I can create this little starter for them and they can pay the rent and, and it, it'll finance that way. Okay. Uh, okay. So, so it's not a traditional, like, you know, you can't really run it the same way, like, you know, for my industry, short-term rentals. It's like, we've got AirDNA, STR Insights, all these tools where you can go in and really analyze the the ROI and how long until you get your cash on cash return. It's a little bit different, but if you have other incentives, right, like saving money from putting somebody in a elderly facility or retirement home or bringing kid back from college, there's a lot of other benefits. You can use those cash on cash return analytics. You can think about this project the same way if it's a pure rental. Most people then go, wait, should I should I build an ADU or buy a rental property? Okay. Because the financing is so favorable. It was so favorable for buying a rental property for so long. Okay. So so but but that's exactly right. You use those tools, you do a real analysis to make sure that this ADU is the best way to invest your time and money today. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes AD is the solution and sometimes it's not the solution. And, okay. that, and it's really important that everybody do their, do their homework, right? Do, be really thoughtful uh, about the project. So I'm curious, and I don't know if you would have any insight on this, because it seems like a lot of people that you're advising are building their ADU for mom, mother-in-law, college kid. But if somebody was truly trying to build it as an investment, just because that's most of the listeners to this show are short-term rental investors. How would they know if they're in a market where it makes sense to do this? I know for us, like the midterms really make sense. We're close to so many hospitals between two universities. But if somebody's in like Iowa, uh, you know, Midwest or something, or uh, let's even take Portland, like maybe it's a little oversaturated there now. I'm not really sure. Like how how would you research if it's a good if if you'll make an ROI on this? Yeah, I, th- I think those kind of demand driven questions are the same everywhere, no matter if you're doing an AD or, or Airbnb or anything. Mm-hmm. You really just got to look and see what's what's available and and then make some educated guesses about demand. OK, um, it what 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 the pandemic has showed us is that it does not. A lot of Californians have moved out of California, gone to other places. And what the pandemic has showed us is it does not take a whole lot of Californians to really mess up the economy <laughs> in another state. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, but that's, that's the thing, right? There's a limited amount of inventory on every market and you get two out of towners show up at the same time. And all of a sudden you've got all new comps everywhere across the board. <laughs> and the same thing will happen in the rental market too, because not everybody who leaves the state is owned a house. And so uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's a it's a dodgy market out there. Things are changing all the time. You just gotta figure out your your the way to do your your research. And I would divorce it from the concept of an ADU when you're doing this research. Okay, you're, right? Because like, it's not like people are out there. Go, you know, I I just got a place in D.C. We were talking before the call. Uh, I'm I'm gonna do a little bit more work in in the capital. 
I don't go online and look specifically for an ADU. I'm looking for an accommodation that fits my need. I happen to use Furnished Finder because I, I had this kind of midterm goal in mind. The unit I got ended up not being an ADU. I would have loved it, but, but, uh, but that, you know, it's about, it's about my needs, not, not like the specific You're right. From the consumer perspective, they're not searching, like only give me ADUs, right? It's yeah. just, this is how many people we need to sleep. These are the dates. This is my budget. Yeah. So you hit, you hit any short-term rental site right now. There's no ADU filter. Sure. Uh, we had to fight tooth and nail to get uh, ML, the MLS services to, to list, uh, to have an actual like legal ADU tick box in California. Mm. Because okay. before people were just putting ADU in the, in the notes in some of the larger text fields. And sometimes it would be legal. Sometimes it wouldn't be. It's just like completely willy nilly. So, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could, could I ask you, I actually have a neighbor like down the street from us. They converted their detached garage to an ADU and they put a separate address on it. Like it has its own house number now. And I wasn't sure, is that something that they just did like, you know, for clarity, like when their guests or renters are arriving, they see a different house number, or is that an actual legit brand new address now registered? You would totally think that this is a question that is answered at like the federal level by the postal service or something. It is <laughs> not. It is it is very whimsical. So some jurisdictions will give you a whole new number. Others okay. will uh, ask you to add a letter at the end or whatever, a sub address. Okay. Some I've even seen kind of refuse to give separate mail, which we've had to sort of w w talk to the jurisdiction and be like, well, you have to understand it's a unit. And so we, <laughs> we need, we, we, I know this particular owner is using it for themselves, but eventually it could have a, a stranger in it and they can't go get the mail from their up, up front house. So it's very whimsical, but it sounds like if your neighbor is close to you, then that is exactly the process you would go through. And that's okay. the best tip in the world, by the way. Once you see somebody doing this, go bring them, uh, bring them a cheese plate. Ask <laughs> them all your questions. Cause, and they want to tell you most of the time. Like they, they've just been through the ringer and nobody wants to listen to their stories about talking to the planning <laughs> department, but you do. We I do. love that story. <laughs> and so, so uh, go make friends. Ask them what the process was like, and you're going to learn some things. You know, in a lot of cities, mailing address is a funny thing you bring up because people just forget about it. And it's not, it's, it's a lot of the time it's outside the normal workflow for the planning department because of the nature of ADUs. And so you'll get to the final and just be like, wait, there's no address. Oh yeah. You have to, you were supposed to go talk to the county da -da -da office. And you're like, what, why didn't anybody, okay, well, what's the wait time? Like three months. I can't get electrical until I get the address. I'm like, not my problem. So it's it's really good to go do all this research that, and find wait, out what the You can't get electrical is. until you have an actual address? It, it just varies wildly. I've heard... So this is just the Wild West still right now. Like ADUs are just like undefined territory, it sounds like. Development in general is the Wild West, right? Okay. Any developer, anybody who is out there doing their own conversions, not just buying, knows this. And the the more into independent units you get, the wilder and wilder the stories get. <laughs> and like, I, I don't want to give people the wrong idea either. Like 90% of people who go through the process will have a relatively unproblematic process that goes by the book. They get where they're going with very few hiccups. It costs more than they thought most of the time, but, but they get there. Uh, but I talked, everybody with the, in the 10% with problem calls me. <laughs> That's what we do. Okay, so let's let's talk about budget. I seriously thought that this would cost me a hundred thousand, and I was like, I can DIY a lot of it because it's in my own backyard. So you know, we'll spend eighty if we can save money. And you're telling me two hundred. So let's rip the bandaid off. Yeah. Give us like accurate numbers here on what people are yeah. spending. I'm gonna, I'm gonna first. I'm gonna plug a sponsor if, if that's okay. <laughs> uh, I work with this company called Realm. They are great at this part for your specific project. So they'll they'll do a quick free call. They look, they plug your address in and your project, give you some rough like costs, and then if you want, you can hire them to get builders to bid on the project, which is also good. But but that costs do you a lot. have like an affiliate with them or a yeah yeah I'll convention? I'll put I'll uh, put a link in the show notes okay. if, if you allow yes. and. That'll save you some money if you do decide to hire them. Although, honestly, the undercut my own affiliate link. If you use one of the builders that they get you, they give you all your money back. So it's it's just a deposit. 
Okay. Uh, well, it, it's a really cool service. But in any case, I, I'm plugging that because I'm going to have a conversation with you, Natalie, about your project. And I don't want people to extrapolate what I tell you and think that that necessarily applies to them. Okay. Because their zip code might have very different rates for labor or for, for a lot of different factors. And, and Realm has all that data. So uh, check out the link if, if for your project. So Natalie, where, give me as, as much detail as you want to give me about where your garage is. We're in Whittier, California. So yeah. outskirts of LA County, right on the border between OC and LA. Yeah. And that's an important delineation because like if you went the other, if you went toward Inland Empire, I could give you a lot different pricing, even though it's relatively close. But, but going up that, oh, all right. So we're going to talk, we're going to talk about uh, pricing in your neck of the woods. It's not as bad as NorCal. So that's the first good okay. thing. But I am going to say, that if you like your your what the expectation I like to set is that until I find out more about your garage, which we're going to talk about, let's start with a two in our head. That first digit's a two. If we can get it down into the one hundreds, then we're very happy. If it's in the low one hundreds by the end of the conversation, then we're like ecstatic. Okay. And if by cobbling together a lot of DIY, if you're willing to invest time for money. You know how that goes. Mm -hmm. uh, your time is very valuable, but if you're willing to invest it or lengthen the duration of the project, you, you okay. can achieve some savings that might even get you sub one if all the conditions are right in your garage. But I do not want to set that expectation because you're spending a ton of time. Okay. And, and time is money uh, and, and, and vacancy is money. Name of the podcast. Mm -hmm. So every month that you have not finished your ADU is a month that you are trading the the return on that very fair right. point yeah all right so having done all those caveats let's talk okay. so whittier uh is your garage when was your garage built do you know the house is like 1951 i think all right uh so it's very unlikely that so when people say like 80s and forward i'm like all right we got we, we probably got some solid <laughs> fundamentals there to work with uh my house is also from 1952 and so uh, if <laughs> you will find a lot of the time that it is not on an actual foundation. It's just a slab. Yes. And, yeah. And that means there's no footings underneath mm -hmm. that. And so uh, if somebody wants to figure that out, they can go to the side of their garage, do the shovel test, kind of dig a little hole, see how deep it goes. But you will usually find it does not go deep. It is in mm -hmm. a slab. And, and what that means is we're going to need to uh, either tear it all up and, and pour uh, footings and, and get a, a solid foundation under there or we're going to need to do some isolated digging and like under pour and like retrofit the existing slab okay and there's a, and there's a cost to all that right we we just kind of like well a lot of the time builders look at it and go honestly start over right uh, and, and and they'll they'll weigh out the differences other things that we'll talk about uh so how how about the walls um uh, when you do you see light coming through different parts of the wall no or is it no the exterior seems really solid like we've got good stucco the roof shingles all seem good inside though it's just yeah. all exposed like two by fours you know holding it together in a lot of ways that's actually a good thing so because okay. because in almost all of these conversions we end up having to put in so much you want nice windows you want nice big openings but that the space is so small that your energy calculations end up requiring an insane level of insulation. Okay. So a lot of the time we end up needing to uh, put in so much insulation. We need to, to widen the walls, go to two by sixes and all that stuff. But if the walls are already open, you're good. Yeah. You don't have to, you know, you, you can look, you go, okay, we got no insulation. Well, you can, you can sister with the existing uh, framing, uh, put in the insulation, put up, hang, hang your, finish it, your drywall and finish it up like that. Okay, so we're officially outside of my realm of like, I don't do this stuff. I don't swing sure. hammers. But what I can say is, all right, that sounds like not the end of the world. And what I would say, uh, and then the third big piece is, can you save the roof? Do you, do you know if, the, if it looks good? I think our roof looks pretty good. Yeah, it's just vaulted, you know. Yeah, opens yeah. up at the top. But it seems, I'm not an inspector. It, it yeah, seems yeah, good. Yeah. We've never had yeah. leaks or anything. Yeah, you've seen, you've seen the inside of an attic. You know what trusses look like versus like, oh, what's, <laughs> this is being <laughs> held together by cobwebs. Okay, so what you want to do, it sounds pretty good. Uh, what you want to do is get a couple real builders to come through and give them some ba very basic. Please, I want you to come look at the building. And I just want to know the ballpark. And I know there could be monsters. So like, just just level with me. Set my expectations. 
And they're going to look at basically the stuff we just talked about and a few other things. Everybody gets hung up on something. And they're going to give you that that range. I if you, if you get some numbers around 150 or lower, then that's a great thing. And we've, okay. we've set expectations properly. It's not that's not possible. You might even then go, OK, what if I quote you up through framing and and drywall mm-hmm. and then I'll take care of the finishes? A lot of builders dig that, right? Because they're mm-hmm. like, oh, homeowners care a lot about finishes. They don't care about the rough construction as much. Maybe I could be in and out really fast like that. That's an appeal to a lot of builders. Other, other things you could do is say, I'm going to take care of all the permit because I've been watching a lot of how to ADU videos. I know how to do that part. So you don't have to worry about permitting. Uh, you're I'm putting you as the GC on the job, but but I'll be handling all the communications with the city, all the utility stuff. OK, a lot of builders like that. And so there's a lot of ways to to massage your way to a, a, a good project. If you're very ambitious and, and I know a lot of your listeners are going to have done some development. Then you could you could owner build in California, which means you're hiring licensed subcontractors and, and kind of project managing the, the whole thing from start to finish. People do end up sub six figures on conversions in SoCal when they owner build. The projects tend to take longer, so I would still question sure. whether it makes sense. But uh, yeah, that's the full range. Thank you for giving me all that oxygen. It's it's hard to set pricing expectations. No, that was excellent. That's actually exactly like when I had thought to my thought in my head, we could maybe do it under six figures. It was assuming we were going to take the role of GC, you know, and and put piece, put all the pieces together. So your numbers are actually in now that I hear the context, it's in line with what I was thinking. So, but you understand why I don't want people. I don't want I'd rather panic you and then fix it down that give like a lot of listeners the idea that, oh, you know, I'll let I've got grand. enough cash. Yeah, <laughs> I've got enough cash in the mattress. I'll pull out one credit card, and then halfway and through, you've dried up. Yeah, it's yeah. the worst because if you don't finish it, it does not return. Right? Like you just have a project that is quickly deteriorating. Yep, and yep. you're not getting any cash flow. So if if you if you aren't, uh, <laughs> I, I do this quote a lot. If you can't buy it twice, you can't afford it. But uh, (laughs) if you aren't like super comfortable spending the 200 that I'm talking about, I wouldn't go in on a 100,000 budget just because like it's much more important to have the flexibility and finish. These are large investments. Okay, Uh, I I don't pretend that they're that they're cheap. They're not tight. Sure, sure. Okay, And then that 200 that you're kind of quoting, that is West Coast number, as you said, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's West Coast. And and, uh, honestly, it's uh, with the North. California area, the the Bay Area, I stick much closer to the two and up. Okay. I like I kind of set people's expectations about fifty, sixty thousand higher for the same niche size project. I'm assuming like a two car garage the whole time. Four hundred square feet, twenty by twenty. Yeah. Yep. Uh, for for SoCal, I'm much more comfortable letting the numbers drift down because well, the data I see. Uh, you okay. know, I've got a Facebook group. It's a community with like forty five thousand people in it, all building ADUs, asking questions, sharing their project. Uh, there's a there's a lot of liars in there too, so be careful. But like, uh, hey, it's Facebook. I'm not, I'm not gonna fix the internet. But so, but people are in there and they're they're sharing their project numbers, and you can tell when a homeowner is really going through it. And that's that's where I grab that's where I sanity check stuff because the industry has a vested interest in sticking people with a high number. Uh, a lot of people quoting you have a vested interest in you believing the low number. Uh, then there's everything in between. I, I just I tell it how I see it happening in the real world. Some people are finishing at around 75 to 95 when they okay. build. I think I think longer. they sometimes it takes a lot longer. And I think they sometimes hide some of those costs in their back pocket. Uh, there's a little cognitive dissonance because you're like, you you want to tell yourself it costs seventy five? Yeah, you came in committed to less yeah. than six figures. So when, when I actually started interviewing people, because there's some really low numbers, when I started interviewing people, I, you you find out where oh well, I, I'm not counting I, that. I did. I watched some YouTube yeah. videos on this, and there was like some girl who said she built one in LA for forty thousand. And when I watched it, I was like, girl. And she ends up sharing like her father in law as a general contractor, yeah. and yeah. like also yeah. like yeah. okay, but I, yeah. We're massaging friend, the numbers. <laughs> yeah. My friends in the space, they say, well, how about that? Would you build my unit? If you build yours for 50,000, would you build mine for seven? Because I would I would gladly pay you the 20. Uh, nobody ever takes that deal. <laughs> 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 and that's, that is how to think about it. But 
in any case, that is the broad strokes of a, of a West Coast ADU. You see the, the costs vary wildly depending on region because the definition varies. Mm-hmm. So if, if you need to build a, a 1,200 square foot ADU to the same energy standards as a house in California, which has a very progressive energy code, that means expensive, uh, then, then like it's going to cost a fortune. Whereas if there's a place like, uh, I keep using West Coast examples because it's a very developed market, but in Portland, they'll let you do a, a tiny house utility hookup and like take, take a little tiny house and stick it on a lot. Uh, I don't know if that's officially an ADU, it, but it's got its own classification that you can do. That's, okay. that's not going to cost very much at all, right? There's some cities in California that say, oh yeah, you can do that. You can use a tiny house, but you have to bring it up to code. And that cost of bringing it up to code, it's like, well, now I'm back to all the expenses, sure. except I've limited the builder to doing this like Lego project when they would rather start from scratch. I have said so many times on this podcast that finding a good, reliable cleaner is the single most important thing you can do to ensure a successful STR business. And if anyone has ever dealt with a bad cleaner, you know I'm right about this. Turno is here to solve that problem for us hosts once and for all. With Turno's Cleaner Marketplace, you can find your dream cleaner and have access to a whole network of backup cleaners in case of emergency. Once you find your trusted cleaner, use the Turno app to manage and automate the entire cleaning process from auto scheduling that gets synced directly to your booking calendar, auto payments, photo checklists, problem reporting, and inventory management. Right now, Turno is offering no vacancy listeners a $150 Amazon gift card just for trying out Turno's cleaner marketplace and completing one clean with them. Just use the link turno.com slash no vacancy to unlock that offer and stop settling for cleaning quality that you're unhappy with. Again, that is turno.com slash no vacancy to find your dream cleaner and snag that bonus $150 Amazon gift card. Can I ask you, I mean, this audience is all over the country. So if somebody is not West Coast or something or in any state, where can they look up regulation about this? And if there's any grants or opportunities available to help fund it or cover the costs, like where's the best resource to go for that? I'm I'm very self-serving. I'm going to do more and more national stuff this year. So please do follow me. I'll try. I I don't I try to be very conscientious about showing up in people's uh, inboxes and things. The, the very best place for your specific project is always your local jurisdiction. Whoever's in charge of giving out building permits and planning permits or whatever the equivalence is in your area, you want to get in that office and just say, hey, broadly, this is my goal. And don't start with ADUs. Again, like start with the need. So if you're like, I want to create a medium-term rental, I'm thinking about traveling nurses or I'm near a university, I'm thinking about uh, dormitories or I'm thinking about sabbaticals, professors on sabbatical, whatever your thing is, or if it's a family member, I, I just got, you know, this is my story. I want to create a little place so that my mom can live on the same property as me and have some independence and privacy. Talk to them about that and see what they have to offer. A lot of planners, when you get them in the right mood, when they're trying to solve a problem for you, try to get to a yes, then they'll say, well, you don't need an ADU. You could do, uh, you could do a guest house. Does it need to have its own kitchen or? Are you okay sharing a kitchen with with mom? Like, yeah, I don't need a kitchen. Oh, great! That's a we got a we got code for that. It's already this this and this. And you always well, you generally want to pick the path of least resistance, right? And if if the planners have that for you, like go with it, right? Otherwise, for grants and incentives, a lot of the time, <laughs> these don't these don't exist everywhere. And as soon as they do exist, somebody like me jumps on it shouts it from the rooftops and it vanishes, right? Dried up. <laughs> yeah, because this is like news you can use, right? Uh, so that, like the state of New York has regional bodies that are handing out incredible amounts of grant money for ADUs right now. But like the the implementation is has me so perplexed. Like if you're in the city of New York, it's something like $400,000 grant per per applicant, but they're only going to pick like, 10 or 15 or whatever it was. Okay. And, uh, and, and it's like everybody applies and they're going to cherry pick the applications that get the grant money and they're going to follow those very closely. 400,000. Oh my right. God. Which, which I, I don't know New York, but I imagine it is very expensive to build. Yeah. In, in, even if you're in one of the more uh, uh, neighborhoody parts of, sure. the, of the big city. But, but yeah, 
four hundred thousand. Like we're talking about life changing amounts of money. There, there are other parts. Of them. Yeah, right. There are other parts of New York where they're doing it more like the California style, where it will be a, like a forty thousand or several tens of thousand dollar grant. But they might means test. They might so the, sorry. They might limit who can get it based on income or okay. the income of the future tenant or things like that. So programs like this will become available. When you hear about them, make sure to really find the source and like get all the details because the details matter a lot. Housing is very complicated. And then uh, the other thing I would say is start with your locals like we just talked about to find out what rules exist. Those same people will be experts on local policy and like the city council or the alder people or whatever, whoever runs your your local government, they are actively trying to improve things on a regular basis. And so you could say to that planner or that uh, building department official, you know, in, in California, they're doing this or in New York, they're doing this. Do you think there'd be any appetite to like make some rules in our town to, to let this happen? And they'll tell you, oh, I don't know, right? They'll have an opinion. How would I go about doing that? And they'll give you, they should tell you, oh, well, city council meets every month. There's a part where you get to stand up and talk about issues that aren't being addressed yet, that aren't on the agenda. And, you you know, uh, it doesn't take a lot of people to show up to a town hall before the politicians are like, that was weird. Yeah, I, I, probably like three people coming up to the mic and they're like, whoa, the demand here for ADUs is just crazy. That's it. And they and they're used to the same people who it's like, you know, small town politics. It's like the same people kind of show up to all those meetings. Normal people who have jobs for whom it is hard to show up to those meetings do not often show up. So if three normal people who look a little different <laughs> all show up. Everybody's like, oh, my goodness. Uh, we should really look into this ADU thing, and it's a slow process. But but that you you go what can can staff consider a policy that would allow ADUs, or can can the city consider asking for state money that's available for zoning reform, and like we could put some of that money into the community and building some of these projects. Lots of these little avenues seem like impossible mm-hmm. because we're used to seeing national politics on TV, which is slow as molasses but local politics relatively fast relatively fast and a lot of money too so uh, okay that's yeah. very encouraging and good to hear i wanted to ask your take on would it ever make sense in certain cases for somebody if they like we talked about the barn dominium right where it's like yeah. you could make a two thousand square foot accessory dwelling unit are there situations like that where it makes more sense to just subdivide and turn that into its own property or are people choosing ADUs over that because of the the grants and the tax incentives right now? Like what's, I don't know, give us the talk on that. Man, it's, it's, this is a big one because uh, it definitely pencils differently. Yeah. Uh, there's a ton of costs in subdivision. The timelines are much longer okay. usually because there's been a lot of streamlining for ADUs, but we haven't done the same streamlining for subdivisions in California. So like SB9 was a law that passed a couple of years ago and it allows everybody in California with a lot more than a couple thousand square feet is a tiny lot. It can still subdivide, dis- despite the underlying zoning saying you might, it might, it's too small. Now, even though that law passed, jurisdictions haven't all changed the way they process subdivision, so okay. they still have the same really slow timeline. Like I've seen a lot of jurisdictions where you still have to have the public hearing, even though the public isn't allowed to say no. You still have to have the public hearing, which means it has to be announced and scheduled. Like and, then formality. Read. And, then okay. the, and it's like, it doesn't matter. The public can't say anything because of the way the law was written. Ah, yeah, we still, but, but it, the, the city charter still says you got to do the, the hearing. So stuff like that, you, okay. see, uh, you see the process still take a lot of time and it, it costs a lot of money. So it's possible that, that you're seeing more gridlock with those situations. Correct. Correct. Okay. Uh, sometimes, but other jurisdictions are like, yeah, of course we can subdivide it. It's okay. uh, there's the, here's the form. Go get your land survey, Bob's your uncle. And, and like, it just varies. The other thing is that this year, we, uh, or last session, the California uh, legislature passed a bill called AB 1033, which allows cities to opt in and say, you're allowed to turn uh, ADs into condos now. And oh, so, no way. Yeah, it's really cool. And so now you, you build, basically do like a tiny HOA 
uh, for I your I was just going to ask, do you need like an HOA and like a board? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, yeah, there's lawyers in Texas who've been doing these. They've done thousands of these. Uh, they've been, they, they come on the show, so watch how to AD you. But uh, right. like they're teaching us how to do it in each city in California. Cities can then adopt these policies. And then you would submit a plat map that shows like what buildings are for, sa for sale as a condo, what buildings are communal, all that jazz. And you set up a tiny CCNR, tiny HOA to, to run it. And then you can sell the ADU separately without a full subdivision. You still wow. have ownership of the whole property. So there's a lot of ways to think about these. It's it's all it's all made up, right? Local government, like we're <laughs> we're we're all a bunch You're of humans trying it. to figure out how to how to plan communities. And uh, what this whole movement is, if you like ADUs, if you like short-term rentals, you probably already plugged into the fact that like maybe there's not just one way to do logic and accommodation and. This whole movement is about opening it up, decriminalizing it, like making it legal to build housing again, making it legal to provide housing to people. And so ADUs are a little rabbit hole. <laughs> and, and, I, and I get people addicted to the whole wide realm of middle housing after that. Could I ask you for your insight on the financing process of this? I know you said that Fannie and Freddie now have loan programs for building an ADU. Is this something that if I predicted. I actually looked in my area. I know I asked you this question earlier, how much typically an ADU can increase home value. I don't know how accurate this was, but I did look it up in my area and it said about 35%, which seems so high to me. All quick yeah, math. That is high. That That's high. Okay. Because like, our house right now is valued around 850. And I was like, times 1.35, 1. 1.15 million after we build it. Like that seems nuts to me, but Never, never say never, but okay. you're, you're also losing a garage when you do yours. Okay. Right? Good point. And like, so, so just look at comps in your neighborhood without a garage for the size house you have, and you're going to, you're, you're going to have a hard time finding them and they're going to be lower because okay. garages are valuable. And so, so, so I think whenever somebody comes up with numbers like that broad, I'm like, that's not backed up by any data. The, okay. there's a really cool guy. I forget his name, but I'll put, I'll put the link. In, in the show notes with you too, with your with your permission. Sure. It's, it, he's done. He's an appraiser out of the Portland area who's done some very rigorous work on this. And you can access. It's not an affiliate link or anything, but you can access courses that where he's taught like what he's found. There's actually an event if if a lot of your listeners are in the Los Angeles area, February 9th, There's going to be an ADU Academy. Uh, there is no appraisal section of that course in, in Los Angeles. But we'll be talking about these issues very specifically. All the people that I keep referencing as like being on top of their game will be there. I'll, I'll be there. Okay. I still learn something every year. Um, so it's a really cool program. And that's February. Okay. But, hmm. but I would roughly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect 35% return. I, I expect yeah. the property value to go up roughly by what you spent. Okay. And, and like, that's. Just, you know how the market is. It, it really, it depends on what somebody comes along and thinks when they see your property. Okay. Um, that that it, makes sense. Because when I ran that number and I was like, okay, so if, you know, it's going to increase by 35% and the entire house would be worth 1.15 after, can I, to finance the build of the ADU, like uh, refinance against that future value and uh -huh. use that money to fund this? So yeah, that, that was the core of my question. <laughs> So great question. The financial tools currently are so re regulated that it is very hard to obtain a loan for the that takes into account the future value of your ADU. Okay. That is sort of Fannie Freddie, a conventional loan. There is now, uh, there's been a policy change, which I'll get into in a second, which does open that up, but it's for new home purchases and the ADU has to be for now. Mm, okay. Uh, however, there's a really cool, another sponsor. Uh, there's a company called Renify. And they specialize in renovation financing. So they will take the future value of the ADU and its potential rental income into account when qualifying you for your loan. It still involves an appraiser coming out. So, and the appraiser is not going to use the number you just had. The appraiser is going to do their job and sometimes well, and sometimes differently. <laughs> and the, they'll, they'll, that'll determine how, how much you qualify for. The, the product is really interesting because it takes a second position. So right now I've talked to a lot of homeowners who are not going to change their, they're not going to refinance in a, in, in 30 years. They're, they're hanging on to that, that great 
mortgage rate as long mm -hmm. as they can. So second position loans that take the future value of the ADU into account to qualify are really interesting. If having said that, shop around, talk to conventional brokers too. And if you're buying a new property, like you're, you're getting, uh, what are they called? There are, two, there are two kinds of loans that Fannie and Freddie have changed their regulation to allow you to buy a property and use the future value of an ADU renovation the same way any kind of renovation would, would be counted in the house with, within some limit. And okay. so talk to a lender. All, all, all of them know this rule by now. Uh, it, it happened last year. And, and that allows you to do some interesting things when you're purchasing new properties. I guess you could, yeah, that's, that's broadly who I've seen using it. Okay. Okay. Got it. Last thing I'd love to ask you is, I know you said that you're in D.C. right now working on some national policy and being involved at the Capitol for ADUs. Can you share anything about what that is? It's so interesting sure, sure. to me. Like, it's it's fun. Like, actually, that policy is a great segue. You know, Fannie and Freddie, that happens at the federal level. Okay. And we've, we've got a lot of wins at the state level in California. We've got other, I'm hearing a lot of rumors about this session. Should be some, some more interesting projects. It's at the state level. But at the same time, I'm starting to see the biggest bottlenecks are at the federal level. And so I, I'm spending more and more time in D.C., knocking on doors, trying to figure out where, well, what I was telling everybody before, just talk to your policymakers. You'd be surprised. Uh, they'll answer. And now that I'm uh, the channel big enough that I get to play at the national level, I'm really happy to be doing that. And so just as an example, working on finance regulation like that Fannie and Freddie stuff right now. Those loads all cut off as soon as you have more than one additional unit. That seems okay. silly. Like there's a big gap for lending products between two units and five units. There's also a lot of zoning reform around commercial properties where like in California, you can buy commercially zoned land and build housing by right now following right. certain regulations. But the financing tools for that are terrible because the types of commercial properties that, are, that you want to convert because they're not doing well as commercial properties are really hard to find it because they're not doing well as commercial properties and the banks can't look at them as residential until you've already completed it. Okay. So those kinds of changes. And then like just this week, the Supreme Court heard a case about impact fees in California and that's on the docket for this session. So there's lots of cool stuff happening. Some of it I can influence people. I don't know if I can influence anybody on that panel, but, uh, <laughs> but it should be fun. We'll talk a lot more about it on the channel uh, and really hopefully cool. help a lot of people build housing. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Ryan, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. I will be at your SoCal ADU tour. Are there still tickets available for yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, on February 10th. It's the day after that academy I talked okay. about. The academy is really great for professionals who want, if you're, if you're like, I think I want to know a lot about ADUs. I want to do a bunch of these. Or I want to teach people how they can use it in their business. Do the academy. It's okay. a whole day. It's worth it. If you're more in the realm of like, I want to do one ADU, I want to see a bunch from start to finish. I want to know the costs. I don't, I don't know if I trust this Ryan guy. I want to see him in person. I want to hear the real costs homeowners paying. We've organized a whole tour of a bunch of ADUs in LA the next day on February 10th. And there are still tickets. You hop over to SoCalADUtours.com. I just did one of these in Oakland, Berkeley. My friends have been doing it in Portland for years. And it is really the best thing a homeowner can do. Once they're a little ADU curious, they just see a bunch in real life, meet a bunch of homeowners who've done it before. It will turbocharge your project or convince you that you should hold off. Depending on what you need to hear. Yeah. And it's, it is great. And if you see me there, say hi. <laughs> I'm I'm really excited. I bought a ticket with my friend Marilyn Taylor, who's also been a guest on this yeah. show. She's thinking of adding an ADU to her short-term rental in a Tuscadero wine country in Central California. And so, yeah, we both got tickets and we're really excited to go. So if I anybody else people. wants, it's February 10th, right? It's a Saturday. The SoCal ADU tour, we'll link that below as well. Okay, cool. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. You answered so many of my questions. You definitely put the budget more in perspective for me. <laughs> so I appreciate you ripping that Band-Aid off. And I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. Back at you. And I can't wait. I want to hear how your ADU goes and what where your budget ends up. I want to hear all about it. I, I will let you know. And, cool. you know, I know we're coming up on time, but if I had had the time, this is the last question I kind of would have picked your brain on. But one thing I see with ADUs is how 
for lack of a better word, how like sterile a lot of them look in the end. It seems like everybody just does the very like cookie cutter, like white drywall, basic kitchen, subway tile. And I really want ours to be just like a cute SoCal bungalow. And I'm wanting to do like a funky backsplash and maybe like pink cabinets, like just something kind of out of the box. But I just wasn't sure, like, you know, for our target of travel nurses, I think it would work. People coming to California and wanting to stay here for three months, I think it works. But I was just nervous on like how the resale value or something of that kind of looks if it ends up being multi-gen in the future or something like that. So I don't know. I don't know if you have an answer. You're not a designer, but that was kind of the last thing I'd love to see like at the at the SoCal ADU tour is like how people have designed different ones because so many of them just look like cookie cutter copycats of each other. The the thing that makes me jealous about Portland's ADU scene is that it was real jewel box ADUs at That's the what beginning. I want. Yeah. yeah. It has its feet in the tiny house movement. So people really made these really incredible kind of like fantasy tiny houses that are sometimes not so tiny. And the success of the movement in California and nationally is great because I want more housing and I want it to be affordable. The drawback to that success is that sometimes you don't you don't see this, the personality at scale mm-hmm. those units. And uh, I'm, I'm, I am a tiny bit of a design nerd, but but I I I try to remind myself like affordability is what I'm in the fight for. And if we get we've just passed eighty thousand ADU permits in California as of last year. Congrats! That's incredible. Incredible, right? Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Th- thank you to everybody who's who's ever thought about building an ADU because you're the ones actually doing it. But that 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 milestone. I am sure that we've built a ton of jewel box ADUs with a lot of personality in that 80,000. And just what I'm seeing is the big box mm-hmm. cookie cutter. And you know what? Both of them are super important because they're both contributing to the affordability. And we'll, we'll get to design while we tackle the big mountain. We'll also tackle making sure the spaces are really appropriate for people and, and just lovely spaces to live in. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a juggling act, but I, I, uh, I hang in there. And if you want to do one, yeah. I would say personally, just if you're going to hit the budget, you're, you think you're going to, if you're going to own or build, take the risks, do something quirky. Like for resale, people will find a way to value it or change it for themselves, right? Everybody buys a house, renovates these days. Like that's, it's this crazy mentality we have, but that's what people do. So don't, don't build your house for the next person who's going to live there. Build it for yourself. Uh, if if you can afford to. I'm so glad we ended on that note. I didn't think we'd have time to touch on that. So I thought that's exactly what I needed to hear. And you're right. That's a really good perspective. At the end of the day, 80,000 grants, that is 80,000 more people who can be housed in this state that is so overpopulated. If it's, you know, just out of the box, basic design, like that is still so valuable. So yeah, that's a great perspective to have. I love it. Cool. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Ryan. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole? Today's post, I pulled this from a hosting Facebook group. The host is venting a little bit about a situation that they had with a guest. There's a lot of dates here to keep track of. So let me give you a quick overview of the timeline and then we will read the screenshots. So seems like this guest checked in on December 23rd and then checked out on December 25th, Christmas Day. They had some issues during their stay, and they didn't tell the host about any of these issues until December 26th, the day after checkout. The host responded immediately, like within literally five minutes, addressing their concerns, and then the guest never replied until January 16th. So what is that? Almost three weeks later. Okay, so let's read these screenshots, and now you kind of have an idea for the timeline. So guest said... This is, again, on December 26th, the day after they've checked out of their two-night stay. Hello again. I apologize for reporting this, and I really hate to do this, but I believe it's important, and I also didn't want to tell you guys on Christmas Day. There were a few issues during our stay. The front doorknob wouldn't stay on the door, making it difficult to open and close the door. The bedroom was very cold at night, even if blasting the heater. The water heater didn't work well after one person showering. The oven didn't work, so we couldn't bake our Christmas dinner. Oh, and not a huge deal, but the TV remote was a pain. LOL. Like I said, I feel terrible for reporting these issues, but to rent a place for $1,000 for two nights, I think it's important to note these issues. 
Hope you guys had a good holiday. Host responds within five minutes. Hey, I really appreciate you being considerate about the holiday and taking the time to reach out instead of drop a nasty review. I really hate to have these issues come up, especially on those more expensive trips. We did have someone come up to fix the door, luckily. Um, let me interject there really quick. She did say in her post, the host, that they did notify her about the doorknob as soon as they checked in on the 23rd, and she was able to get a handyman there within a couple hours, um, which she really pushed for because she knew it would be hard to get them on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So that was taken care of right away. So the one issue that they reported promptly was fixed immediately, okay? Then she says, no need to apologize. We appreciate any feedback that's given in private. I'll have to check the vent in the bathroom and make sure it's all functioning right. I'm so bummed to hear about the hot water. We just replaced the entire water heater last month. We definitely will reach out to a plumber on that one. That's it, okay? They responded within five minutes this, addressing the fact that the one thing that the guests brought to their attention was fixed within a couple hours and everything else they talk about their plan to address it. January 16th, so again, almost three weeks later, this guest responds, Hi, sorry for the late answer. I just realized my email never went through. I was actually telling all those problems in the hopes of getting a refund. We brought special food for our Christmas Eve that we weren't able to cook because of the oven issue, which ruins our plans for our family Christmas plans. Also, the cold temperature in the bedroom woke up our son and my pregnant wife during the night, so it was really not a comfortable stay. We haven't put a review on Airbnb yet because you've been an amazing host and we were hoping you could issue some refund since our stay definitely wasn't worth the price we paid for it. Thank you in advance. <sighs> okay. Honestly, the things that this guest brings up, like they are a big deal. If all these issues happened during one of my guest stay, I would be willing to offer a refund, right? What did they say? Heater wasn't working. Water heater wasn't working. Um, oven wasn't working, the remote, sorry, I don't care about that, and the doorknob, which they fixed immediately, so that's fine. But heater, water heater, and oven, that's, that's a big deal, okay? However, they did not give the host any chance to rectify these issues. Additionally, there's no proof provided of any of this. The host even says, we just had that water heater replaced, and now that it's January 16th, the host did put in their uh, summary of the situation in the Facebook post, they put that they've had multiple guests since then and nobody has complained about these things. They were like, yeah, we do have a water heater and it takes a little while to heat up. I mean, it's the mountains and it's cold. This is normal. They said the oven works. It just takes a bit of time to heat up. Also, we have central heat in the house, but it's only 530 square feet and it stays plenty warm. We haven't had a single complaint about the bedroom being cold in seven and a half years of hosting. So they weren't able to provide any proof or anything for this. And on top of all of that, he reached out three weeks later. And it's funny how this guy says, oh, we haven't left a review yet. Dude, you can't leave a review anymore. That 14 day window is gone. OK, there's a statute of limitations on this stuff. I I do feel if all of that happened, I do feel for the guests that's a pretty miserable stay and it's considerate that they didn't reach out on Christmas and just kind of sucked it up if this is true. But we just the way that the guest handled this, you do have some sort of res a responsibility, right? And anything you go through, if you're going to report a crime, there's a statute of limitations on that. There's a certain amount of time that people need to collect evidence and documentation and and put like a case together and figure out what's going on and get to the bottom of it. I think that we can see that this host, she handled the doorknob issue within a couple hours of them checking in and was absolutely on top of it. They replaced the entire water heater a month prior. So I have no doubt that this host would have been on top of it if they had been given the opportunity. And it's so unfair for these guests to come out three weeks later and ask for a refund. Like the time has passed, buddy. You didn't leave your review. You didn't you didn't file a claim like it's over. It's over. So at this point, I would not refund the guest at all. Um, it looks like based on the comments, the host did not, which I support that. Um, if the host can't even bother, if the guest cannot even bother to check their email and respond within three weeks, what are we doing? Why? Why are we wasting our time engaging with them? This is what they wrote in their comments. The host added an update in the comments. 
Update, I called Airbnb and opened a ticket explaining that his claims were false and he has provided no proof that any of these things were true. They said that there is no chance that they are going to offer any type of refund as it is completely in my hands now and has been well over the 72 hours since he checked out and he hasn't filed anything with them. I have not replied to him and I'm honestly debating just blocking him to avoid any future stress or messages. I support that. I support that. Uh, one other host commented, they're just letting you know now, if a guest doesn't call me during this day with an issue and we can't verify it or make it right, we will do nothing. I make it very clear in my house rules that there is no, that way there's no nonsense like this later. I'm sure everything was fine for them. This is a complete quest to get some money back. I would absolutely say no, since you were not given the opportunity to verify these complaints. True, 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 true. Somebody commented, it is a bit rude, but ghost him. I mean, he vanished for three weeks. You can vanish for three more and this problem goes away completely. Agreed. Agreed. Is that the most professional way to handle it? No, but this guy didn't really do his part to help his case or or get the money back or prove any of these issues. Sayonara, dude. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.